Strange Stories UK here again for Series 3, Episode 4, Performance 3, uh, John Bindon, Murder, Princess Margaret and London. Well, this is the third podcast connected with the film performance. The subject of this podcast is John Bindon, who had a small part in the film, but a huge effect on the filming. Bindon was a well-known face on television. He always played a similar role in films, a thuggish person. He had a lot of charisma, but he symbolises the meeting of gangster London into the film world of the 1960s. Bindon lived these roles. He was perfect for the film performance. I can't imagine the film being made without him. The film is uh, where the underground meets the underworld. For me, the film performance isn't about individuals, but more about society changing. There were huge changes during the 1960s that reset society over sexual preferences, women's liberation, racial harmony, and the social classes merging into one, so that it was claimed at one time that there was only one class and that we're all middle class now. As with all change, accepting these changes in the early stages is difficult and problematic. There were a number of moral panics and political mistakes in the late 50s and early 60s, and that set the scene for the film. Suez and Profomo uh, being the best-known examples. Bin was able to move from his impoverished working-class origins to mix with royalty and become a well-known film actor on little talent other than being confident, a confident chancer and a thug. So who was John Binden? Born John Arthur Binden on October the 4th, 1943 at Hogan Road, Fulham, West London. A two-bedroom flat there today would cost about three-quarters of a million pounds. But in 1943, it was an impoverished area. Bindon's father, a Cornishman, was in the Merchant Navy and later a cab driver. And his beloved mother, Sicily, was of Irish Catholic descent. John got his first criminal conviction age 11 for malicious damage. He was throwing stones and breaking windows at a bomb site. As a youth, Bindon was described as a tubby with a well, big round smiling face and a pudding bowl style haircut. Bindon ducked and dived in Fulham and started thieving lead off roofs of nearby buildings to sell to scrapyards. He attended Henry Compton Secondary Modern School, once considered one of the roughest schools in London. It's now rebranded as Fulham College Boys School and is considered one of the best state schools in London, reflecting the gentrification of the area. School friends said that if Bindon didn't want to stay in a lesson, he would just get up and leave. The teachers seemed wary of him and just let him go. At the age of 14, Bindon was a big lad, and the size of Bindon's penis was already provoking comment when he was in the showers after school sports. Bindon was proud of his penis, which he would exhibit at every opportunity, and perform tricks with it later. It was said to be 12 inches, although girlfriends later said that it was always about the same size, flaccid or erect. Anyway, it became a bit of a bore to everyone who knew him after a while. Some people thought that Bindon was deformed. He had such a huge penis and such a large head. He was very sensitive about the comments about the size of his head. Bindon left school at the age of 14 without any qualifications and started spending time at local pubs. 
He was considered a cheeky chappy, and he started spending more time around the, along the King's Road and around Chelsea, and he managed to persuade a TV producer for him to appear on the 6-5 special, the pop programme for teenagers that started in 1957. Bindon was fascinated by the guests on the show, who included Billy Fury, Marty Wilde and Adam Faith, with their slick-back hairstyle and tight trousers and couldn't-care-less attitude. What impressed him was that they were all working-class boys making a name for themselves through the new music of rock and roll. They were part of a generation of the young, changing everything, films, music, literature, photography, art, all pursuits that had once been under the control of the wealthy. John was also impressed how these new stars, such as Faith and Fury, seemed to have the pick of the girls, something that appealed to Bindon. Maybe Bindon thought he could become upwardly mobile through popular culture. That must have been a thought going through his head. But Bindon was having trouble with the law, and he was caught stealing crates of beer, and went to Borstal for three months. After his release, he was caught stealing a car, and so a process started of him serving time and meeting criminals who convinced Bindon that the best option for him was to make money through criminal behaviour. Bindon had grown into a six-foot-two well-built man who was starting to build up a reputation as a hard man. He found work as an enforcer and a debt collector for the local gangsters. Bindon was now in and out of prison on a regular basis and the police were considering him as a career criminal. However, Bindon thought that the jobs he was doing only really paid him beer money, so he tried normal work, road laying, antiques knocking, photographing tourists outside Buckingham Palace. Bindon was also playing rugby. He was a prop forward for a number of clubs in the London area. In 1964, at the age of 21, Bindon got himself sentenced for two years for assault, serving time at Wandsworth Prison where he became friends with Mad, oh well, Frank Mad Axman Mitchell, who in turn introduced Bindon to the craze when they visited in prison. When Bindon finished his time, he made a determined effort to try to make a fresh start, and he moved away from his previous dodgy contacts in the Fulham underworld. He was friendly, uh, friendly with Paddy Kennedy, the landlord of a public house, the Star of Belgravia, who allowed him to rent a tiny muse house that belonged to the pub that had been empty for some time and it was situated behind the pub. The Star had been a popular meeting place for criminals for years, probably because in Belgravia it was considered neutral ground. The great train robbers planned their theft there. The Star had a reputation and it had attracted a diverse group of people, including celebrities and the aristocracy, who found it entertaining hanging around with criminals and being sworn at by a landlord who had no respect for status or wealth. If Paddy took a dislike to a customer, he would single him out for special treatment, much to the amusement of the others in the pub that night. So Bindon was now settled in an upmarket address in Belgravia, although his place was tiny. There was no bathroom as such, and the single bedroom had no window. But it was 1966, and Bindon found himself in the epicentre of swinging London. It was a promising time for Bindon, who spent a large proportion of his time chasing women. In central London, lots of posh girls were looking out for a bit of rough, such as Bindon. The contraceptive pill allowed sexual cross-community, 
and King's Road became a promenade for the beautiful people of Europe. Bidden was attending the upmarket clubs in the Chelsea area, where cannabis and Purple Hearts, a stimulant drug, were taken to allow people to stay awake and wired. Bidden was going to the clubs on the King's Road with a posh crowd and having a party discovering a new world. But he was still having run-ins with his heavy gangsters. Bindon specialised in turning on the charm and had the ability to turn difficult situations into opportunities for friendship. It was said that once you made a friend of Bindon, he tended to stand loyal, to stay loyal, which won him respect from some heavy-duty villains in London at the time, such as the Cray Gang in North London. Bindon had problems with South London gangs to the extent that he generally stayed north of the Thames, although he would visit the Elephant and Castle on a regular basis to see a girlfriend and a daughter. The craze often gave him problems to solve and it was up to Bindon how he'd to sort them out. This normally involved money owed for protection. A friend made by Bindon, described as a decadent aristocrat, was Anthony Rufus Isaacs. As Rufus Isaacs explains, at this time everybody was drunk and shagging every night. Everyone was on supercharge and there was a lot of money around. In some sentences, Bindon became the court jester for Rufus Isaacs, who was a friend of Anthony Armstrong Jones, the future brother-in-law of the Queen, and a near neighbour to David Litvinoff, the subject of our last podcast. Bindon started mixing with a number of actors, such as Benny Carruthers, who told Bindon that his real tough London background, he would make a great actor. Another actor called Billy Murray had been born in the East End of London, and had joined the Craze Boxing Club, who on learning of his desire to become an actor, they financed his enrolment into acting school. Murray had also encouraged Bindon to consider acting. Bindon was attending all the trendy clubs and meeting all the influential people. He was popular, he was loud, and people enjoyed his company, as he made a joke out of anything. But he was still involved in criminal behaviour. There was a famous case of an emerald being stolen, a heist that Bindon was involved with. It all went wrong, but Bindon managed to escape punishment despite being arrested. His criminal friends later said that Bindon didn't have the right mentality to pull off such jobs. It didn't give him the buzz that professional criminals feel. Bindon preferred thuggish behaviour, and he was never happier than having a punch-up. One of Bindon's local pubs was the Bricklayer's Arms in Waterman Street, Putney, and he would hold court at the bar whenever he was there. A local was reported as saying that he was a celebrity for some who felt the thrill of excitement when he entered the brick, as the locals called it. But others quietly left because of Bindon's sudden unpredictable violence. Another local from Putney said that Bindon was a thug and everyone knew it. He loved beating people up. He did have qualities though. He was a very funny raconteur because of his confidence and he did have good stories. Whenever he was in the pub, there would be a circle of sycophants hanging on his every word. Bindon continued to do protection in the pubs in his area. Basil Q was a doorman at the club in Shepherd's Bush, and he was approached one night by two men, allegedly on behalf of John Bindon, who offered for a regular payment that the club would be protected from undesirables. The owner of the club was absent, and the men agreed to return to see him. The owner sought advice and was told to say that their services were not required as the Cray brothers were providing that service for them. It was not true, 
and whether Bindon was involved will never be known, but the ruse worked and the men never turned up after being told of the Cray's involvement. <coughs> Nell Dunn came from a privileged background, claiming to be the descendant of Charles II and Nell Gwynne. But she was living in London, Battersea, not exactly a posh area in the early 1960s. Nell had become a published author and was one of Bindon's new media friends. She asked him out to meet up with a film director, Ken Loach, as she was recommending Bindon for the role of technical advisor for a film called Poor Cow, which she had written. A kitchen sink drama, the type of which was very popular in the early 60s. Loach had wanted to meet up with Bindon after hearing him talking with others in a West London pub. He liked what he heard, as Bindon was clearly a big personality. After the meeting, Bindon was told that he'd got the job as an advisor, but also a starring role in the film. Loach liked to cast non-actors in roles that he felt that they would excel in. Loach didn't really write a script, as the actors just improvised. Billy Murray, who was also in the film, said that Bindon was a rookie actor, but he was very impressive. He didn't have any nerves. He wasn't phased by the camera, directors or the producers, and treated everyone just the same. Ken Loach, the director, was very impressed with him. Bindon co-starred with Terence Stamp, the pin-up boy of British cinema at the time, and an East Ender of working-class origins. Stamp being one of the subjects uh, photographed by David Belly, Bailey in his uh, set, The Box of Pin-Ups, which we have mentioned previously. The star of the film was Carol White, who came from a similar background to Bindon. Her father had been a rag-and-bone man. White was a household name and had worked very hard for her fame and was anxious to protect the position she had made for herself, which could make her appear a little standoffish. Bindon's role in the film, Poor Cow, stirred up a lot of press interest as he seemed to be playing to type, a criminal in a profession dominated by public schoolboys from wealthy backgrounds. The film was made by Loach being dominated by working class and non-actors. After Poor Cow, Bindon was cast in the all-star Inspector Clouseau film, but there were questions asked about how Bindon got his equity card. Well, I think I can answer that without doing any research. It would have been a bent card, paid for or given as a favour. Such was the world that Bindon moved in. Anyhow, the Sunday Mirror newspaper asked Bindon about the equity accusations, and he just said that he would feel like taking a punch at someone if he was an out-of-work actor and he was denied the role by someone like me taking it. But would anybody give up who wanted to stay out of jail such a chance when it came up? Bindon was an adept publicist capable of embellishing the truth by lying about the reasons for his prison sentence. All the parts that Bindon was now being offered were villains, but he claimed that he wasn't worried about being typecast arguing that Humphrey Bogart had been successful playing similar roles in each film that he was offered. In 1967, Bindon made the news again, jumping off Putney Bridge to save a jumper. The press loved it, saying, Paul Cowstar dies 40 feet in rescue bid. That was on the front page. The person that Bindon was trying to save drowned. He was William Hill, aged 22, of Vincent Street, Westminster. Bindon was given the Queen's Medal for Bravery, the sort of second division George medal. Some people were saying that Bindon threw Hill in the Thames and was trying to save him after he thought that he'd been seen. Another actor with a similar background to Bindon was George Sewell, 
who was born in Hoxton, East London. He had a number of jobs before acting. He was a steward on the Cunard line, on the Queen Mary. Then he travelled to America and Europe doing a variety of jobs, trading on his winning personality. Sewell had a similar introduction to acting as Bindon, becoming a fixture on, on TV in the 60s and 70s. He acted in the early Loach films and would have been a shoo-in for the film performance, but he was working on a film Doppelganger at the time, so was not available. But he did appear in the gangster film Get Carter, which in many ways was the northern equivalent to performance. In the British Film Institute's list of best films made in the UK, Get Carter with Bindon, Sewell and Michael Caine is at number 16, and performance comes in at number 48. Anyhow, Sewell said that Bindon was great company, one of the funniest men I've ever met. He didn't tell jokes, he just made everything funny. But he could be a liability getting into pub brawls. Bindon's daughter, Kelly, was born in 1967 with his long-time partner Sheila Davis, who lived in a small council flat in the Elephant and Castle, along with a pack of dogs. Sheila did not like Bindon's arty set, who she called the Hello Darling crowd, and gave a hard time to anybody that would come round with Bindon. Bindon tried to be a good father to his daughter. Bindon was making friends with other actors who he was appearing with, including the hard-drinking Irish actor Richard Harris, who was said to be fascinated by Bindon's criminal background. Bindon and some of his criminal associates were now mixing regularly with a rich and creative set who characterised 1960s London. In the summer of 1968, he was invited, at David Litvinoff's suggestion, to act in the film performance, the film that was supposed to explore the nature of identity. Technical advisor David Litvinoff had done business with Bindon before, as had questioned certain people over the Rolling Stones drug bust of the previous year to try to discover who tipped off the police and the news of the world. Everyone knows that it was the Acid King, who was probably a, an FBI spy, but this will all be in the next podcast. Litvinoff and Bindon knew each other from the uh, activities of the Chelsea set and the activities of criminals such as the Craze. I can't see them as friends, but they must have realised that they could do business with each other. Bindon and Litvinoff were to use their own real-life experiences as a basis for some of the most violent scenes in the film performance. Bindon's character in the film is called Moody. He would non-stop talking during a torture scene, and the actors all knew that Bindon had done things in his criminal life similar. During the filming of the performance, Bindon's intake of cannabis increased greatly which heightened the air of unreality surrounding many scenes when violence was taken for granted. Co-star Anita Pallenberg was taking large amounts of heroin. Other members of the cast said that the crew were taking dope, cocaine and heroin. And it was said that on set, you could get any drug you wanted, but you couldn't get a cup of tea. Filming performance started on the 22nd of July 1968 and finished in October 1968. Bindon would go on pub crawls with some of his co-stars and have punch-ups. During one such incident, Billy Murray, who had a small part in the film, said that Bindon came to the shoot uh, the next day after a pub crawl with a matchbox which he kept shaking in front of people, saying that it was the top of someone's thumb that had bit off the previous evening. Bindon claimed that the person that he had been trying to contact him to get the thumb back, he tried to stitch it back on. Murray said that no one actually saw the thumb, but the story spread like wildfire on the set.
There was a similar tale told when Bindon had bitten off a part of an ear, which had rattled about in a cigarette packet. Camel, the director of performance, tried to get the actors to become the person they were acting, and anything goes. They could do what they wanted on set, as long as it was in character. Camel also liked to cause tension on the set. He liked to encourage sexual couplings and uncouplings. Camel slept with both leading females of the, of the film, Pallenberg and Michel Breton. Camel was fascinated by criminal violence. He was part of the Chelsea set, where no party was complete without a villain or two. So Binnan's behaviour was encouraged. Sex, drugs, rock and roll and violence were the ingredients that Camel wanted to show in the film. Binnan, playing the gangster Moody, was thus in his element, and it was probably the high point in his film career. Johnny Shannon, who played Flowers in the film, said that Johnny Binden used to wag his three-piece about. He loved all that. He was one of the chaps. I'd never met him before performance, but we all knew the same people. He used to enjoy telling stories, these terrible stories about himself. People would laugh, but when he was out of the room, people were horrified. He frightened the actors. When the film was completed, Binden found it difficult to get regular work, possibly as his reputation put some directors off. There is the story of Binden attending an audition and being criticised by an upper-class director, telling him to get his, that his teeth needed fixing and he should attend auditions wearing a suit. Binden lost his temper and tried to hit the director, screaming, I'm not your effing toy boy, as the director ran away. Binden was still involved in criminal behaviour and getting involved with feuding gangs. He was straddled between two worlds, the film world and the entertainment industry, and the world of criminal gangs. During this time, one of his friends was the musician and record producer John Porter, who played with Roxy Music. Bindon spent a lot of time at Porter's house, which he considered as a safe bolt hole that no one else knew about. Porter later said that many of his musician friends and contacts were scared of Bindon, who was anti-drugs at the time, and called Porter's friends freaking druggies, although he needed a bit of puff to calm him down from time to time. Bindon told Porter that he thought he would never get the big acting role because of his working-class background. It was a struggle to get work. He did not think he would ever really make it. This is perhaps the reason that Bindon kept in with his criminal contacts. Porter later said that his life with Bindon was like a real-life version of the film performance. But he also said how well-read Bindon was and what great discussions they had. Victoria Hodge, a.k.a. Vicky Hodge, born on the 17th of October 1946 into an aristocratic family and best described as a larger-than-life character. She became part of the Chelsea set and was the lover at one time of the photographer David Bailey. Hodge had a healthy take on life, two of her sayings giving some indication of her personality. 1. Never refuse work, modelling, or you don't work. 2. Men are like buses, if you miss one, there's another one round the corner. Vicky Hodge was made for the King's Road lifestyle. She claimed to have worn the shortest miniskirts. She wore Marks and Spencer's kilts that were made for seven-year-old children. When Vicky first met Bindon, they went out on a dinner date and it was lust at first sight. Vicky told him that she was about to get married to Ian Heath, who came from a very wealthy background, and although she was earning good money as a model, she wanted the security that marriage could provide. 
Vicky married and they were given a home in the exclusive Seymour Walk, Chelsea, as a wedding present. Bindon started work a role in the film Man in the Wilderness, the western starring Richard Harris, which was being shot in Spain. The Revenant, the 2015 film, being a remake. Bindon was killed off in the film early, as he was fired for his drunken brawling. But he remained great friends with Harris, bonding over their Irish backgrounds and love of drinking. Bindon continued his relationship with Vicky Hodge after her marriage, which uh, wasn't to last. She began to see Bindon's criminal connections as she met members of the Richardson and Cray gangs. She also realised that Bindon was a sex addict. He had one-night stands with famous actresses and anyone who took his fancy. Bindon's new role was a gangster in the movie Get Carter, released in 1971. This is when he got to know the actor Michael Caine, who was another working-class Londoner. During the filming, Bindon was involved in some heavy-duty gang business. Vicky Hodge saying on one expedition to South London, he cut a man's arm off, and he, he, Bindon had her act as his getaway driver. At the same time, Bindon was networking on the film and fashion industry and making influential friends. Sometimes Bindon had a strange way of introducing himself. For example, Bindon beat up the shoe designer to the stars, Terry de Havilland, outside a West End London uh, nightclub after a drunken dispute. De Havilland saying his clothes were ripped and he needed stitches in his face. But later they became very good friends. Bindon used the clubs in the King's Road. The Man in the Moon, which is now in luxury flats. The Water Rat and the Roebuck, which were quite rough in the early 70s, later turning into punk pubs. Uh, in the later 70s, and now they're gentrified gastro pubs. Another area, uh, another place he used to use was the Gaswork Club, which was the netherworld where toffs met London gangsters. London, in fact, Bindon was to use it uh, as a regular place to take his girlfriends. He took Princess Margaret there a few years later. The Gasworks Club was fondly remembered from the vintage porn in the loos to the antique bric-a-brac on the walls. Unfortunately, it's now turned into luxury flats. De Havilland claimed that he and Bindon shared many lovers who happily agreed to threesomes, which he, uh, which he played, which they called bookends. A different name today, spit roast when practised by Premier League footballers. De Havilland, who sadly died last November 2019, said that he was amused when the former sexual partners came on TV as respectable senior citizens wondering if they still remember the wild parties at his home at Cheshire Mews. It was through de Havilland that Bindon was to meet other people, such as Angie Bowie, who, being widely promiscuous and a bisexual, she introduced Bindon to all sorts of different sexual adventures, including threesomes. This is when he met the jazz singer Dana Gillespie, another member of the decadent aristocracy and a former girlfriend of David Bowie. In fact, uh, Dana Gillespie and Bindon became very good friends. Bindon became a bit of a show pony for Angie Bowie on the account of the size of his penis, and she would arrange for friends to have sex sessions with him. Bindon said that Angie was Lakes of Kalani, balmy, but he was happy to go along with her ideas which involved him having sex with famous people. It was claimed that Bindon was paid for his services. Angie called Bindon's penis the Mighty Marrow. Those that knew Angie from this period argued that it was not such a big deal, as was happening all the time in the period of three love. Angie was very assertive. She'd walk into a club, grab a man and say, 
How are you? Do you want me? At Angie's sex parties, Bindon walked around with a red dildo strapped to his head. Angie said that she found sex liberating and was not interested in being monogamous with David Bowie, her husband, who admitted that he did not love her. Bindon was making friends with Led Zeppelin's manager, Peter Grant, and American actors in London such as Benny Carruthers, Greg Holdell, Elliot Gould, which got him acting parts on the stage and also working for film directors such as Stanley Kubrick. Bindon was also getting TV work, but none of these roles were hugely paid and Bindon was forced to make money where he could. He was often given money by pub landlords to keep unwanted customers away. Bindon also did some work for Kingsroad Antique Dealer. Bindon was then offered a chance by Dinah Gillespie as her minder as she toured the USA, supporting David Bowie, which opened up a new world to him. He did not always impress. Dinah said he was often diverted from his job, wanted to have sex with women they had just met. When Bindon returned to the UK, there were no film roles being offered, and he was taking on criminal jobs which normally involved beating people up for debts owed and for protection. The 1974 saw Bindon invited to the Caribbean island of Mustique by Dana Gillespie, who had and continues to have strong links with the island. Mustique is a tiny island, about two square miles, and was developed into a hideaway holiday for the wealthy. About 400 locals live on the island, mainly to do the work, albeit for generous pay rates. Bindon caught the plane to Barbados, not realising he would have to take a boat to reach the island but he managed to hitch a lift on a huge yacht. He said that the first person he saw when he walked on the beach was a huge black man. This was Basil Childs, who owned the local bar, and he asked him if he was Biffo the Bear, Bindon's nickname. Bindon said that the island was like a bounty advert. You don't see a lot of people around, and the ones that you do see are filthy rich. Bindon was staying with Dana and her friend, the composer Lionel Bart who started uh, as an East End land, uh, London lad from Stepney. Bindon went to the Cotton House, the main hotel on the island, to be introduced to the people staying on the island and to have dinner. Princess Margaret was in residence and Bindon was told that Colin Tennant, who owned the island at the time, decided if you were to be introduced to Princess Margaret, also known as PM, and was instructed not to talk to her unless she speaks to you first. Bindon said that everybody sat down in evening dress with white tablecloths and silver cutlery. That Bindon was soon at home in such company, teaching people including PM, Costamonger language and Cockney rhyming slang. He was singing for his supper. Everybody sunbathed naked on the island, so Bindon's penis was soon the talking point on the island. Dana Gillespie talked of an incident whereby Bindon was making love to a woman on the beach that he'd recently met. There was a bush nearby where Bindon was having sex and a group of local lads were watching them and masturbating. While behind them, the neck curtains of his room, Lionel Bart, who was a well-known gay person, was watching them and doing the same as they were. What larks were to be had on Mustique? Bindon spent a lot of time with PM, Princess Margaret. Her beach parties were elaborate affairs, silver service, PM would be in a strapless costume with a cigarette in one hand and a drink of gin in the other. Mustique was said to be unique, as those on the island were drawn from all classes and backgrounds, but unless you were local, you had to be rich or interesting to be invited. Photographs of Bindon with PM on the beach were to be published in the UK media, these causing much comment 
as Bindon was wearing a red t-shirt with the words Enjoy Cocaine next to a symbol for Coca-Cola. PM seemed to be taken with Bindon. She would take a dip in the sea, still smoking a cigarette in a holder, while Bindon kept her amused telling her stories. Bindon slept with the PM despite denials from the royal spokespeople. Bindon said that he remained respectful and he always called her ma'am throughout their sessions. Bindon also snorted cocaine with PM, who he advised not to get addicted. It should be remembered that Princess Margaret, who died in 2002, aged 71, had a string of affairs well documented with film stars and fellow aristocrats. There were claims that Peter Sellers, David Niven and Mick Jagger were among her conquests. The princess's marriage to Lord Snowden came to an end when she was pictured with her lover, Roddy Llewellyn, 17 years her junior, on a musty beach in February 1976. Bin was invited back to Mustique the next year by PM and when in London he entertained her at the Gasworks Club in Chelsea and at other times she sent a car to bring him to her Kensington Palace. During a New Year's Eve party on the beach organised by Conan Tennant with no expense spared, Bindon was with Hodge, Gillespie, Mick Jagger, Jerry Hall, Brian Ferry and of course Princess Margaret and her entourage. During the evening a lady-in-waiting said that Mom knows about your advantage in life and would like to see it. Bindon didn't hesitate in jumping up, walking down the beach and taking his penis out. Princess Margaret was said to examine it as if it was a fossil. After a few minutes they returned to the tables on the beach. The lady-in-waiting was said to have commented, I've seen bigger. Bindon's friend said it was a facade to disguise the fact that Bindon had been seeing uh, PM during the previous year and knew all about his advantage. Bindon also told his friends that he had difficulty with PM as he was too big and she couldn't take it. Also that PM smoked cannabis while in Mustique. Refusing to say any more, Bindon claimed that he would never sell his story about him and Princess Margaret. However, Vicky Hodge, Bindon's long-term partner, said that when he was drunk, he would talk about her, how and when and what colour underwear she wore. In the spring of 1975, Bindon claimed that MI5 officers came to pick him up and had some words of advice regarding his time with PM. After the visit, he got rid of the photographs and mementos of his time at Mustique. It seemed that he was shaken by what he was told by these officers, but some type of deal seemed to have been reached. Later it was said that if Bindon kept quiet about what he knew about PM, then there were people that could do him favours. During 1977, Bindon appeared at London Bankruptcy Court facing tax debts. Bindon had never put money aside to pay taxes or had ever had an accountant or even a bank account. During that summer, his friend Peter Grant offered him a job working on Led Zeppelin's USA tour. This was good timing for Bindon, who needed to get away from bankruptcy and publicity regarding Princess Margaret. Bindon knew the members of Led Zepp. Grant and Bonham were the wild men. They loved Bindon but the rest of the band had doubts thinking he was employed as a mate for Peter Grant, which was probably a fair assessment. The tour was a Led Zepp tour, so it's going to be quite riotous anyway, but things kicked off in San Francisco, which involved the police and a local SWAT team. The security team, including Bindon, had a, to flee after being given a tip-off that they were about to be arrested. Bindon was given a fine and a jail sentence in his absence, and sacked by Led Zepp as a security guard. 
Grant said that he made a big mistake in employing Bindon, and this episode haunted Bindon, making him unemployable to many. A similar story was told about Bindon being a friend of Steve O'Rourke, the manager of Pink Floyd, and considered one of the nice guys in music. Bindon sometimes did security work for them. But Bindon was out with others one night, driving an O'Rourke's Mercedes convertible, as O'Rourke was something of a petrol head, as they were going to the nightclub in Tramps, the nightclub Tramps. After leaving the car, O'Rourke panicked as he left his briefcase on the back seat of the car. He returned to tell others, including Bindon, that he was lucky the briefcase was still there, as it contained important papers and £4,000 in cash. He said he put it in the boot. Bindon left the group and made a phone call. A short time later, the car boot was forced open and the briefcase stolen. Bindon had arranged for it to be stolen, although O'Rourke was a friend and an employer. When somebody accused Bindon of organising the theft, Bindon knocked them out with a punch. In 1978, in Fulham, there were numerous illegal after-hours drinking clubs down dark alleys. The Randley Yacht Club was on the Fulham side of Putney Bridge. The name was misleading because it was located under a railway arch and no one ever was thought to have been interested in yachts that went there. Not to be confused with the Randley Saining Club. Bindon used the club as did a number of his friends including Bobby Buckley, Roy Dennis and Alan Staunton. Another popular drinking club nearby with Jay Arthurs on the King's Road run by Freddie Milt Foreman who had a number of South London gang contacts. One of the people that used the club was John Dark, who lived near Crystal Palace, and whose associates liked to call themselves the Wild Bunch. Dark had a scrapyard, always a good cover for criminals in London. Although Dark liked to call himself a van hire merchant, Dark was also suspected of being involved in various frauds, including burning down buildings for the insurance, and of course drug dealing and lorry load hijacking. Dark was also trying to keep the police off his back by informing on others. This information had leaked out and the word was out that he was a, there was a contract on him. It was said that Bindon had deliberately cheated him out of cocaine so that Dark would come looking for him and Bindon then could take him out for the reported £10,000 contract. One Monday afternoon on the 20th of November 1978, Bindon, who supposedly owed money for the cocaine taken from Dark, was going to his local pub. When that closed, he intended to go to the Yacht Club. There was a pub in Wandsworth called the Prince of Wales near Clapham Police Station. That was used by John Dark and his associates. On this Monday, Dark had tore up expecting a visit from John Bindon, who had not showed, so they were going to go out looking for him. Dark and his crew had gone looking for Bindon, who'd ripped them off, and they were told that he would likely be at the Ranley Drinking Club. No one knows for sure what actually happened, but it seemed that there was a fight where several people were stabbed. Roy Dennis was knifed by Dark who was then set upon by Bindon, who was knifed in the back by persons unknown, at which point three of Dart's wild bunch stood by and stopped anybody else intervening. These characters were called Begbie, Baum and Galbraith. It was said that Dart was sat, uh, was sat on the injured Bindon, taunting him with, when an associate of Bindon's, Lenny Osborne, appeared with a machete and slashed Dart across his back. This gave Bindon the chance to stab Dart with a hunting knife he carried in his boot two or three times. Well, that's the version that was told later in court. An alternative version is that Dark was rushed by a couple with knives. Dennis and Bindon, perhaps? Dark managed to cause some damage to Bindon and Dennis as the melee ensued. Bindon was very badly injured 
and his friends were determined to get him away before the police arrived and he was driven to the nearby Britannia, Britannia pub. A bent doctor was called who stitched him up as well as he could after a kettle was boiled to sterilise some needles. Bindon drank whiskey and smoked dope to ease the pain and took tranquilizer to try to slow down the blood flow. Vicky Hodge arrived with £100 to pay the doctor. She said that every time his heart beat, blood would seep out of the wound. Back at the Randy Yacht Club, Dozens of customers were cleaning and polishing everything in an attempt to remove evidence before the police arrived. Sixty people had seen the fight, but no one was prepared to testify. Most left after the fight, as did the membership book, which was never found. Freddie Foreman's friends, Alfie Gerard and Jerry Callahan, those were the people that tried to kill Jimmy Evans in our first podcast in the series, were throwing the weapons used in the fight into the Thames. Freddie Foreman said that a couple of weeks previously... Binder had come to him as he had heard there was some trouble with Dark at Foreman's J. Arthur's Club, but Foreman hadn't done anything about it. Binder asked if Dark was being protected. Foreman said no, if you want to go for him, he won't trouble me. Binder pulled out a hunting knife indicating that he was going to stab Dark, which is two weeks later what happened. Binder wanted to go to Ireland. He was driven to Heathrow by Vicky Hodge who told the Aer Lingus staff that her boyfriend had been injured in a rugby match, so they let him on the plane. Contacts in the IRA had been called, so they could organise a hideout when he arrived in Ireland. There must have been some collusion of the police and the forces in Ireland, as anybody in the state Bindon was in should have attracted a lot of interest. At that time, there was investigations into corruption in the Metropolitan Police Force, Operation Countryman. John Dark had become an embarrassment to the police, and had information that they would not want him to reveal. He'd been involved in murders and violence against others, and was apparently a supergrass. It would be convenient for the police if Dark was killed in a gangland incident. And this is what happened, of course. And as a result, Binner was allowed to escape to Ireland. Well, that's the theory. When the police tried to investigate, they were met with a wall of silence. Even early Begbie, Ernie Begbie, who had part of his nose hanging off at a Charing Cross hospital, refused to say anything. Binder was hiding out at a hospital called St Vincent's run by nuns near Dublin as the police in London were beginning to realise that Binder had been the person who killed Dark. They also heard that he'd gone to Ireland and that he'd probably died. The newspapers had got to hear of Dark's death and the police announced that Binder was their main suspect which gave the newspapers a start to a frenzy report on a well-known TV tough guy wanted by police. Within days, Bindon phoned up the police in London as the Irish police, the Garda, had started to investigate the man with stab wounds at the hospital. The police had a problem getting Bindon back to the UK because of his health and rumours that there was a price on his head. He eventually arrived at Fulham Police Station on the 9th of December 1978, where he was charged with murder. Bindon was re uh, remanded in Brixton Jail. Vicky Hodge smuggled tranquilizers into prison as she was worried that he may explode inside. She would wrap Mandrax in a cling film and pass it to him while kissing. The prosecutor wanted to prove that Bindon took money on a contract to kill Dark, but there was no real evidence to support this. Police officers admitted in court that Dark had been paid sums of money for information he had given them, one of which was information leading to the arrest of armed robbers in October 1977. A number of crucial witnesses for the trial jumped bail and went into hiding. A South London solicitor acting for one of the missing men was threatened with death if he became involved in the case. 
There were lots of murky goings-on involving the case. The information on the case, the official papers, are not due to be released to the public until 2064. The trial opened at the Old Bailey on the 23rd of October 1979. Bindon pleaded not guilty to murder. He said that a Mr X had been after him, who was the man who may take reprisals against his family. The man was described as a lunatic when he'd been drinking. I assume he was talking about dark. Bindon claimed that he was a working actor, but his past had caught up with him, and that's why he did not act as a normal law-abiding citizen would have reacted. Instead, a girlfriend had given him a hunting knife to protect himself with. It was said that Bindon put on an excellent acting court. The policeman who had brought Bindon to justice said that Bindon's testimony was a masterful performance, worthy of an Oscar. Bindon had asked his acting friends to testify on his behalf as character witnesses. These celebrities were said to have been entranced, uh, had, had entranced the jury, in particular Bob Hoskins. The judge warned Hoskins that it was a court of law, not a theatre, and told the defence he didn't think any more actor character references were required, which is the reason that George Saw was told he was not required to give evidence for the defence, as he had been due to give uh, be a character witness the next day. The judge, Dr Justice Mars Jones, gave a sympathetic summing up for Bindon, saying there was ample evidence that John Dark acted in a highly provocative way, and if it was not for the intervention of Lenny Osborne, Bindon may well have been murdered. But the judge also said there were hints of a cover-up surrounding the case, and a false story had been made up for the police. Bindon was cleared of any charges, while members of Dark's gang, Boehm and Galbraith, were found guilty of a fray and sentenced to three years. Galbraith's wife was in the public gallery and started finding with uh, Bindon's girlfriend, Vicky Hodge, as more scuffles broke out after the trial. After the acquittal, the Daily Mirror started a serialisation on Bindon in how he started mixing with the wealthy and aristocratic set in how he became good friends to Princess Margaret. TV shows that featured Bindon were now allowed to be shown on TV and there was a talk of a movie about John Bindon, which he didn't seem too keen on, which seemed to have killed off the project. In the press, photographs of Bindon wearing Enjoy Cocaine t-shirt while in the company of Princess Margaret were widely shown with the caption Bindon says he will never talk about the princess. Bindon still thought there was a contract out for him for killing John Dark, so he left for California with Hodge in the middle of the serialisation of his life in the newspapers. Vicky hoped that she would make a fresh start in the USA, although given his police record I'm surprised he was led into the country, let alone given permission to work. While in California, Bindon met up with his acting friends, who could have got him work. He could have reinvented himself like Vinnie Jones managed to do, but Vicky said that he wasn't really interested, he just wanted to get back to the UK. Incidentally, Bindon was said to be the inspiration behind Vinnie Jones' character in the Guy Ritchie film Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. After six weeks, Bindon returned to London, having quickly got through his £40,000 that had been paid by the Daily Mirror for the story. Bindon was now a high-profile character. His old stomping grounds were being gentrified and the pubs and clubs he used to frequent became tourist spots as people wanted to spot a gangster and drink near them for the frisson of danger that may occur. Richard Harris called by to see Bindon and revealed that he also enjoyed sex sessions with Princess Margaret at a lady-in-waiting's home near Kensington Palace and he needed Bindon's help in tracking down some explicit photographs of Princess Margaret that had been stolen after a burglary at Harris's home. Eventually the photographs were said to be tracked down thanks to Bindon's assistance in exchange for £5,000 
and the photographs were destroyed. Photographs depicting Princess Margaret were nothing new. Michael X is a character that we've discussed in the past. It's thought that he managed to get photographs of Princess Margaret in a compromising situation on the island of Mustique in 1970. It's not known if or how he got these photographs, but it would have been possible for a local islander to have taken such photographs without too much difficulty. It was claimed there was a raid on a safety deposit box kept in a London bank, a Lloyds bank to seize valuables and, comp- and the compromising photographs. The story made the press in September 1971, but government D-notices were applied to the story to stop any more reporting. Binder was not getting much acting work, although he did have a role in, as a drug dealer in the rock opera Quadrophenia in 1979. He was given a few jobs to do by criminal friends. Binder's reputation was falling in the acting world, and he was also said to sabotage filming so that delays would mean that he would be kept on longer. Also, he was having feuds with certain axes that were too scared to go anywhere near him. Vicky Hodge broke up with the Binden. She'd been under great stress with the dark court case, and it made her ill. Binden's violent nature was making life difficult for her. Binden adopted a much low profile during the 1980s. He did some protection work in Fulham in Chelsea. He continued to live in his tiny muse house and used the Gasworks Club as his local. However, his showbiz friends had deserted him, and Bin was living a much quieter lifestyle. Still, he had influence in involving the police. In 1982, he was convicting of threatening a law student with a piece of pavement. Vicky Hodge, meanwhile, had gone to live in Barbados. She made the news headlines, sending photographs of Prince Andrew in intimate situations with a woman that she knew. Hodge stole the story for £40,000 to the Daily Mirror newspaper, which gave Andrew the nickname Randy Andy in March 1983. Bin was also trying not to get involved in anything that could cause him problems. His friend Alan Staunton had tried to enlist his help in sorting out some problems, but Binden was not getting involved, telling Staunton that his three most recent brushes with the law had been sorted out thanks to connections with the police, who had warned him about taking, talking about Princess Margaret. John said they pulled a few strings to make sure that he wouldn't be banged up again. Shortly afterwards, Binner was arrested again for an assault in a pub, which Staunton said she should have served time for, but he was acquitted again, making Staunton believe that Binder was telling the truth about being protected. There were alternative theories as to uh, why Binner was getting away with so much. Um, he could have been a police informer, or he could have secretly taken compromising photographs of Princess Margaret, which protected him. Well, Binden seemed to be getting out of touch with the wider world concerning uh, his patch on Fulham in Chelsea. There was a story of some criminal gangs from outside the area setting up clubs and bars in the Kings Road area, including the Adams family, a sort of modern-day Cray gang, albeit more organised. Binden challenged these new clubs, but was warned that if he ever walked into any of their establishments again, he'd be killed. Binden had underestimated their influence and others had to intervene to save him as the gang gave their warning of him to keep well away. By 1988, it was clear that Binder had given up acting. He was offered a role in Ridley Scott's 1492 movie, but he turned it down as he could not face being in Malta for a month of filming. Binder snubbed his old friends if he saw them in the street and seemed to be turning in on himself. He was no longer the confident Jack the Lad character he was known for. In 1989, Binder took a job as a brewery delivery driver, 
He'd managed to get a crooked test examiner to pass him for a driving licence, although he kept up some low-level criminal work, doing deliveries and the like. Binnan was regularly visiting his old friend Alan Staunton at Maidstone Prison. Another inmate at that time was Freddie Foreman. At visiting time, it was possible to go and speak to people that you had not signed in to speak to. Freddie Foreman spoke to Bindon about his showbiz days and asked him why he left the film world. Bindon replied that they wouldn't have him. In any way, he couldn't stand the people in the business who were frightened of him after the dark court case. It was the early 1990s that Bindon's life seemed to have gone into rapid decline. One day he returned to his muse home and found his alcoholic brother Michael had died in a chair sat in front of an electric fire as a snowstorm raged outside. Binnan is said to have carried his brother's corpse to the local pub, the star behind his home, and he bought his brother a last drink. Michael had died of hypothermia and had fallen into the electric fire, burning his flesh. The incident seemed to have sent Binnan a little bit mad. In 1993, newspaper reports said that Binnan had liver cancer and he died on the 10th of October 1993 of what was said to be an AIDS-related illness. Over 200 people attended his funeral at Putney Vale Crematorium. Well, that was the last, uh, well, the third, I beg about the third uh, podcast on the performance film story. Uh, next week, I will be uh, attempting to tell you the story of Mick Jagger's role, the Rolling Stones' role in the film. And there's lots of interesting stories about that. So until next time, I'll thank you for listening. I'll thank Damselfly for providing the background music. And I'll say goodbye until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.